back. It looks as though we're not going to be able to have a second voice on this program. Well, let's talk about uh, medicine and medications. Couldn't put my hand on the uh, Mother Jones uh, editorial a few weeks back, um, but I have it now. So let me quote from it a bit. Written by uh, Editorial written by Monica Bowerlein and Clara Jeffrey opened with, Among our leaders in Washington, who's the biggest liar? There are all too many contenders, yet one is so floridly surreal that he deserves special attention. No, it's not Dick Cheney or Alberto Gonzalez or John Yu. It's a trusted authority figure who's lied for 11 years now, no matter which party held sway. No, it's not Alan Greenspan. This liar didn't end-run Congress or bully it. No, this liar was ordered by Congress to lie as a prerequisite for holding his job. Give up? It's head of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, the ONDCP, also known as the Drug Czar, who in 1998 was mandated by Congress to oppose legislation that would legalize, decriminalize, or medicalize marijuana, or redirect anti-trafficking funding into treatment. And the drug czar, here's where the line comes in, has been prohibited from funding research that might give credence to any of the above. These provisions were crafted by Dennis Hastert, Republican of Illinois, and Bob Barr, Republican of Georgia, who later ran as a libertarian for president in 04. Yeah, Barr's libertarian like Mussolini. And then pushed for by then-drug czar Barry McCaffrey, best remembered for being somewhat comically obsessed with the evils of medical marijuana. Oh, Barry McCaffrey, by the way, surfaced in that scandal last year as one of the Pentagon in-house experts that was being trotted out to talk about how well the war was going in Iraq. Editors went on to call this uh, the most bizarre, hypocritical, counterproductive moment in our nation's history of drugs. Well, not when you have prohibition to compare it with, uh, they noted that prohibition came about when progressives got into bed with the Ku Klux Klan, but was rolled back once they'd had enough of the mob. Of course, we always love the fact that Harry Anslinger, the drug czar of the 1930s through 50s, did actually supply morphine to Senator Joe McCarthy because he worried about the national security consequences, not of the Red Baiter's habit, but of its potential exposure. Another great moment of hypocrisy was uh, the drug war progenitor Richard Nixon, ordered a comprehensive study of the perils of marijuana, then ignored the study once he learned it recommended decriminalization. So I'm listening to, to KCBS radio a few mornings ago, and they were talking about uh, legalizing marijuana. And the, the bimbo that was conducting the, quote, interview, unquote, was asking a guy who was pro-medical marijuana, well, you know, this has obviously got all the dangers of tobacco, and it's, it's, it's uh, mood-altering as well. How can you say this is medicine? Thinking to myself, excuse me, you should do a little bit of homework before you open your mouth. Well, there's a million studies proving the deleterious health effects of tobacco. I'd like you to show me any study that's proven that marijuana has negative effects on health. And this is not for lack of trying. Now, personally, I don't think you should go out and, and you know, uh, smoke pot right and left. That probably would not be a good use of your time. But if you're going to tell me, as a medical doctor, that marijuana has, you know, all these terrible health effects, I'm going to just say, show me the studies. 
Now, does cannabis has legi- have a legitimate medical use? I'm, I'm convinced that it does have a role to play and that the cannabinoids are going to be huge in the future of medicine. In fact, I was looking this up. You can go to Mexico or Europe right now and buy cannabinoid receptor-blocking agents that will help you uh, lose weight, sort of an anti-munchies effect. But you can't buy such medications here in America because we got, uh, you know, drug czars telling us that uh, this would be bad. And when it comes to stupid drug-slash-smoking policies, it's hard to beat the fact that uh, you can still, apparently to this day, go to a PX on a military installation and buy your discount cigarettes. When I was in medical school, I worked uh, for a time in the largest VA hospital in the entire system. That was the Long Beach VA. And a lot of the residents had tried to organize protests to stop the commissary from selling all these vets, you know, cartons of smokes at a discount rate. (laughs) The smokers themselves thought that was a bad idea. They liked buying cheap cigarettes. And after all, their heart disease and cancers were being treated at the VA, so everything was working out swimmingly. Anyway, I was struck by the article by Jay Price and Noreen Khan, McClatchy Newspapers, talking about uh, how the U.S. military's long-storied love affair with tobacco might be doomed. The Pentagon, said the article, which actively promoted smoking during the two world wars and still subsidizes tobacco at PXs and commissaries, is finally considering a ban. I guess they're fine. the Pentagon's finally waking up to the fact that tobacco-related health problems cut into combat readiness and cost the military $900 million annually in medical care and lost productivity. Cost the VA another $6 billion. Here's a part in the article that struck me. I thought I, thought I knew about this, but uh, this one really hit me between the eyeballs. For decades, said the authors, military leaders supported smoking because they believed it steadied nerves, helped overcome tedium, maybe even brought a jolt of courage. During World War I, General John J. Blackjack Pershing said troops needed cigarettes as much as bullets, and the War Department bought up Bull Durham's entire production in 1918. In World War II, Army manuals urged commanders to smoke and pushed their troops to smoke. So many cigarettes were shipped to GIs, they were even included in sea rations, that there was a shortage back home in the U.S., Both wars turned out to be terrific marketing programs for tobacco companies. Anyway, a study by the Institute of Medicine Committee on Smoking Sensation in Military and Veteran Populations, that's a mouthful, recommends that Pentagon and Veterans Affairs leaders consider the following. Ending subsidized prices for tobacco products and eventually stopping the selling of tobacco products entirely. Start treating tobacco use as the military now treats alcohol abuse and poor physical fitness and eventually ban tobacco use on all military property. Maybe impossible to achieve all those goals, but uh, I think most of them are doable. And man, the, the idea of promoting smoking is, wow. I mean, pretty horrible thing to contemplate for our military to be doing to its, uh, its uh, uniformed service people, wouldn't you say? Speaking of medical care, here's an article I, I just love. Sacramento Bee, June 26th. Reprint from the New York Times. AMA studies proposal to strip doctors of lab coats. Note the article. Picture a doctor in your mind's eye. What do you see? A stethoscope? Perhaps a little black bag, but almost certainly a white lab coat. That last item may be destined for oblivion. The American Medical Association is studying a proposal made at its annual meeting in June that doctors hang up their lab coats for good. 
Group's Council on Science and Public Health is looking at the role clothing plays in transmitting bacteria and other microbes. Duh! But of course, the objections have already begun. The coat is part of what defines me, and I couldn't function without it, said Dr. Richard Cohn, a clinical professor of medicine in Cornell. When a patient shares intimacies with you and you examine them in a manner that no one else does, you'd better look like a physician, not a guy who works at Starbucks. I love the next line in the, in the article. For many patients, a white lab coat is as much a part of a doctor's persona as a 10-gallon hat is of a cowboy's. But it does note that uh, a 2004 study showed that 40% of neckties worn by a sampling of New York City doctors and clinical workers carried at least one species of infectious microbe. I mean, I, I, I don't know that there is a better way to transmit dangerous microbes from one patient to another than to require medical personnel to wear ties as they're leaning over examining the patient. So ties are idiotic. I only wore them when I was absolutely forced to. They are, beyond a doubt, a health hazard. And I would note that the British National Health System, system adopted a bare-below-the-elbow hospital dress policy that bans long fingernails, ties, hand and wrist jewelry, and of course, lab coats a couple years ago. I think we'll continue to follow this story as it evolves. I've tried going without a lab coat, and, and speaking of banning things in medicine, you know so I've been saying speaking of, because the segues in the show are just uncanny, wouldn't you say? But no, apparently certain boneheads over at the Food and Drug Administration are insistent that we just have to get acetaminophen reined in. In fact, an FDA advisory panel recommended last month that uh, we ban Percocet, Vicodin, and several other prescription drugs. Oh, not for the narcotic agents they contain, but for the Tylenol. Here's the somewhat faulty reasoning being offered by Dr. Robert Squires of the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. You can go to any large box store and purchase 1,000 tab bottles of extra-strength acetaminophen that is enough to kill 25 people. Well, yeah, you can go to any 7-Eleven and buy enough Viverin or Nodos to kill yourself. These same kind of morons that are working for an agency called JACO have gone into clinics I've worked in over the years and basically tried to ban every, anything and everything that might possibly be harmful. For example, disinfectant, taken out of the room. Someone could drink it. Oh, alcohol and peroxide? Well, you have to store those things in separate locked containers, even though you can mix them up. They, there's no problem mixing them, you know, using them in the same place at the same time. Anyway, in the case of, uh, of, 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 of acetaminophen being used with various opiates, I hope that the uh, FDA does not follow the recommendations of its advisory panels, although it usually does. Of course, we'd note the vote was 20 to 17. It's not exactly a unanimous opinion here. Switch, switch the vote of two doctors, and it goes the other way. I'd, have to, I'd hate to see a major drug policy being based on a 20 to 17 vote. Which this does raise a legitimate question in the case of, of, of say, Vicodin, why you can't just uh, prescribe hydrocodone or, or oxycodone in the case of Percodan, Percocet. Uh, I don't know. They add acetaminophen because it's, it's a better analgesic with both agents present, but... Uh, Acetaminophen's toxic. Maybe, maybe it is time to sell, you know, just the actual narcotic. Of course, you know, that's going to lead to problems. One thing I've always found curious about this idea of acetaminophen toxicity is that when I've heard about big fat idiot Rush Limbaugh and the amount of Oxycontin that he bought, like 10,000 pills, he was taking 100 a day. 
apparently there's more of an ability to adjust to acetaminophen than I think doctors realize. I've sort of gathered this from uh, the literature. Apparently, if you slowly build up, your liver can metabolize more than we conventionally think of, like in an ER setting when someone's taken an overdose. Well, if I had more time on today's show, which I don't, I'd like to talk about the interview with David Attenborough, a new scientist, and the New Yorker article about uh, James Hansen. Also, a couple articles on global warming, but uh, alas, it's not to be for today's show. So in the time we have left, which is about three minutes, how about this item? Editorial pages, Sacramento Bee, July 22nd. Headline, newsflash, dead animal bodies stink. Subheadline, homeowners in Sunrise Douglas should have known about risk. Go to the editors. Sacramento County Supervisors should never have approved the construction of thousands of new homes in the Sunrise Douglas area within a whiff of Sacramento Rendering Company. The plant melts down animal carcasses, restaurant grease, and other ways to make tallow, animal feed, and other products. But the people who moved into those homes were fairly warned that they were going to be living next to a smelly industrial operation, and they bought their houses anyway. Now, hundreds of them are complaining about the stench. This seems to be a classic example of the adage, buyer beware. Despite strong objections raised by this page and others, supervisors approved construction of 10,500 homes for the area initially, a number that has more than doubled in recent years. I find myself, I found myself driving around in this area a few days back, and I was stunned by the number of homes built out in this uh, godforsaken stretch of real estate. On the one hand, I suppose it's good to build on old rocky tailings of mining dredging rather than quality farmland, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I notice it's also like just off the runway of Mather. If a plane goes down and departing while it's heading east, there's going to be problems. I also found myself under the flight path over at uh, Sacramento International today and noted that, man, these people bought their houses right under where planes are taken off. Which, if you think about it, ain't that smart. But I guess it does prove P.T. Barnum's adage that uh, nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. part that gets me, though, is after you build your house under the pattern of air traffic, you then demand that the airport close down its noise operations or, or do reductions or not be allowed to expand because noise level will go up. Folks, you got to think these things through. All right, final 10-second item. I went to go see Whatever Works a few days ago. I like Woody Allen as a director, and I like Larry David as a comedic personality. But bored stiff, I lasted about 45 minutes and then just got up and left. Larry David's pretty good at improvisation, pretty lousy at memorizing and repeating back the written word of Woody Allen. Trust me on this one. At, at best... You might uh, want to wait for this one to come out on DVD, and then again, you, you might not uh, even want to see it then. Can't anybody out there make a good comedy? Then again, you never know how Captain Blood in Space is going to turn out. There may be a few yucks there, intentional or otherwise. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax and had some fun today. Hope you did too. Any questions, comments, or feedback, please forward it to us at info at radioparallax.com. I want to close by noting that 
The opinions you heard on this program today do not necessarily in any way reflect those of KDVS, any of our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California, although they have conducted a study to see if they want to start adopting some of these opinions officially. We're not sure how that's going to turn out. All right, and before we go, we'd like to do a little bit of shameless self-promoting. On September 17th of this year, the Sacramento News and Review's 20th annual Best of Sacramento issues will hit the stands. We, of course, have enjoyed a warm relationship with the News and Review over the years. And we note that their event producer slash media relations manager sent me an email suggesting that most of our media contacts stand a chance at winning, so please encourage your fans to vote for you. Seems like a pretty good suggestion. And since one of the categories is Best Radio Show, we hope, if you like what you hear on this show week in and week out, you will express that in the voting. When you vote, you do have to give an email address so that uh, there's no uh, ballot stuffing. We hope you'll do this because, well, not because we want another plaque for our wall, but because we want to send a message that what we do on this program week in and week out is something you approve of, you like, and therefore, we hope others in the media will notice, perhaps the media in general could use more of what we do. We certainly think that would be a good idea. The mainstream media told you there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. What, last year? We told you that before the war started. So please, dear listener, send a message and vote. We'll see you next week at the same time.